This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold, so go get a copy. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree, and our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. Professor, uh, we've had a Interesting, good start to the year. Uh, we're now getting into earnings season. The markets are reacting. The The bond markets have certainly come way to your view of what's happening. Bond yields collapsing. We're here to get your take on how you think the year started and, and how you uh, are changing any views. Yeah. Well, it's a big struggle. Um, you know, it just seems like the Fed doesn't get it. Um And, uh, I mean, very weak data this week. Uh, I mean, first of all, very good price data um, on the uh, PPI. uh, That followed what I said last week was good price data on the CPI. um, uh, Good inflationary expectations data. um, Very weak retail sales. Very weak Fed uh, New York Fed, uh, although Philly Fed was a little bit better than that. The big disconnect, Jeremy, is that despite the weakness we see in manufacturing um, and, and all the, uh, the, uh, the, the regional, uh, basically, ISI indexes, um, the labor market is extraordinarily strong, even, you know, shocking me. I mean, claims falling below... 200,000. So my feeling is, is that until they see weakness in the labor market, um, they will not relent. How long this tremendous deviation can take place between pretty weak real economic data, I mean, all the GDP numbers for fourth quarter were ten, definitely revised downward this uh, this week um, as a result of, of, of the data. And when they will actually see the weaker data is when I think the pivot will come. What the market worries about is that's going to be too late. They will finally say, yeah, we see the weakness. Uh, the job market is loosening up. And then they will just hold at the high rate instead of raise, and the market will continue to go down. Then they'll lower 25 basis points, and that won't be enough. And all of a sudden, they have a train going downhill uh, rather than uh, – and and say, oh, my God, just a minute here. Uh, We didn't expect uh, this uh, decline to go so quickly. Um, And that's what the market worries about, to spiral into uh, a, a recession. So what's basically happening is that uh, uh, the bond market, of course, is seeing lower inflation and possibly a recession. It likes it. We've really seen a drop in the 10-year tips rate, um, uh, really drop tips uh, dramatically uh, later this week. And I think we got the 10-year, if I'm, if I'm going to you know, take the actual data over, I think it's at 115 uh, on the 10 year. Now, the the interesting thing is uh, the 10 year test is 121, but still drop. And, and this is good for the market. And so the market is of two views. Uh, they like the discount rate going down. They like what's happening on the price data. They're worried that the Fed just looking at labor market data. Uh, I mean, Every every Fed official has stayed hawkish, very hawkish, like they're ignoring the data um, on prices uh, completely and uh, staying extremely tight. And and basically, equities are worried about um, 
that that will stay too tight too long and they won't be able to turn around the ship. Now, as we've talked about, uh, you know, a, a recession or a mild recession will lower earnings $10, $15, maybe for a year or whatever. In the big picture, that should not crash stocks. Psychologically, though, markets always do decline during recessions. Uh, So that's the struggle of the equity market uh, today. They hope weaker data uh, will will come through to convince the Fed to stop. I'm, I'm still guessing a 25 basis point increase, although as we know, Bullard and others have still talked about 50. Um, uh, but I'm I'm thinking 25 because I continue to think that, uh, you know, we will be seeing some weakness uh, in the real data. I should comment on all the drama in Washington about potential default. There will be a game of chicken that will be played until the very end. There will never be never be a default on government debt. Payments will be made. If the stock market goes down in June, which is the anticipated date of of this chicken game, um, uh, either treasury bonds go down uh, and or equities go down, I would be a huge buyer because once that is resolved, you will see a huge rally at any time. But there's no question that the uncertainty of that uh, will keep the market discounted uh, until that by maybe uh, four, five, six percent from what it would be if the debt ceiling will be resolved. It will eventually be resolved. Um, I have no doubt uh, about it. It has for the last hundred years always been resolved. Um, And uh, uh, nobody wants to be blamed for a thousand dollar stock market a drop in one day if they delay any payments on the debt. And that might be even a, a low point of what, an underestimate of what the drop uh, will be. So that that's my take on the, the drama there. It, it has three months to play out. Um, there'll be ups and downs since then. Uh, no, no side is willing to be serious yet because it's three months away or four or five months away, I guess June we're still in January, so probably five months away. It's way too long in a political uh, view to to uh, start negotiating. Uh, there will be negotiations, and there will be a little bit of give and take. No one wants the debt to go down, and and the Republicans will end up taking most of the blame uh, when they vote, and it will uh, the public will see the Republicans will be voting against raising it and uh, potential default, and uh, the Republicans don't want them to be uh, viewed as the person sending the stock market down 2,000 points. So it will be, it will eventually be um, uh, resolved. We we got a few follow-up from comments on valuations in the recession. Maybe you could expand a little bit on the recession point quickly on what, what you think the real multiple should be during recessions, what they're usually, and how that compares to where we are today? Well, actually, multiples often don't go up, but they should go up because recessions are the best point to buy equities. Um, if you look five years past, you would see what the PE should be 22 to 24 times recession level earnings. Now, they don't. They're not, because we all know equities overreact uh, to recessions. Will they look beyond this recession to the Fed finally loosening? Uh, you know, how much foresightful will they be? We will see. I thought we would begin to see some softness in some of these labor markets, but the tightness of the labor markets has kept the Fed firm, increasing the probability of a recession later uh, in the year. And that's why equities were on the weaker side this week while bonds rallied. Again, the the important indicators will probably be uh, on jobless claims, the jolts that comes out at the beginning of the February, and of course, on those payroll numbers. Um, 
all those, if they continue to be strong, the Fed will continue to hike, although at a reduced pace. Professor, thanks for giving us some comments to kickstart the show today. Thank you very much, Jeremy. We'll see you next week. I'm going to turn uh, our conversation now. We have uh, a guest for the re- remaining of the program. We have Lorenzo Esparza, uh, who's CEO, founding principal at Manhattan West, uh, a California-based RIA advisor firm that also does a lot of uh, their own strategies. We're going to talk a lot about that with Lorenzo. Lorenzo, w- welcome to Behind the Markets. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get into your firm, your background, uh, you just heard the professor lay out his case on the economics, the macro. I know from chatting with you, you have a lot of views on similar similar topics. So I thought maybe give you a chance to respond how you see the Fed inflation, some of the key issues that the professor commented on looking ahead for the economy and, and the markets. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the professor and have followed a lot of his, uh, his sentiments over the years. So uh, you might hear a tone of... Uh, uh, of my sentiments that uh, pay homage to his. But um, no, look, I generally believe um, that, uh, you know, we are likely to hit a, a mild recession, potentially a soft landing, but I think it's really incumbent upon what the Fed governors decide to do here. Uh, I think I was sharing with you that uh, I had been surveyed by someone from uh, the Fed, you know, reaching out to business leaders, trying to get a sense of what's happening in the real economy. And, um, you know, the very, very distinct pointed questions about, you know, what's happening with the labor economy, the, the labor market, what are companies doing, uh, you know, what's happening with, you know, cost of goods and, 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 and pricing. And I think there's a very clear indicator that companies are definitely pulling back. They're, you know, loosening up the, uh, uh, the amount of hiring they're doing. In fact, they're in some cases they're you know letting a lot of uh, staff go. So uh, definitely a trend is happening that I think we'll see uh, you know lay out uh, the the outcome over the next six months or so. So as I had indicated, I you know previously I don't believe that the Fed should raise at all uh, from here. However, if it's a 25 basis point raise in February. You know, I think we can live with that, but anything beyond that would just be uh, highly negative to the markets and I think to the real economy. Yeah, that's what the professor keeps saying is, you know, he wants them to pivot quickly. Um, but it's, you know, do you see them being able to like his point that I mean, it's interesting. You see these little tick ups in Silicon Valley type firms, uh, the tech firms starting to announce some layoffs. They did massive hiring. I don't know if, if you can speak from experience of being on the West Coast and see what you're seeing from the, the workers over there. But massive hiring over the last three, four years. Uh, and they're starting to put trickles of layoffs, but it just hasn't showed up into jobless claims. And I wonder if the types of firms being the financials, the tech firms, if they have different severance packages or things that just may take time as they go through bonus season it takes time for people to come onto these new rails or any any views on, on why we haven't seen it in jobless claims yet? Well, I think it's a lagging indicator. It'll take a minute, but you're going to start to see it pretty soon, right? So Google came out this morning and announced some big layoffs. Um, and I think you'll see uh, a number of other companies come out and do that. There's been a, a number of announcements. But, you know, one of the things that I talk about from our vantage point because we're investing in real estate, we have a real sense of what's happening in in that sector, like what's happening with rents, what's happening with cap rates, what's happening with uh, demand for industrial buildings, which you know has gone up significantly and now is loosening. And then particularly in, in the areas of, uh, of kind of the middle market space, right, with our private equity funds and our, our venture investments, you're seeing a trend across those sectors. So one of the things I talk about is is having a point of view that is informed by a lot of these different areas. And so, um, you know, it, I'm hearing from business owners that, you know, companies are, are have already commenced layoffs. There's uh, reduction plans being developed. I'm hearing from, you know, larger Silicon Valley based venture firms that they're telling their companies to, you know, have a couple of years of cash to cut back. And um, I think there's just a general focus uh, on profitability. And, and so this idea of, of growth at any cost is starting to uh, subside a bit. So, you know, you're, you're going to see, uh, you know, a, a loosening in the, um, in, in the economy uh, with, with folks that are you know, losing their jobs and, and um, you know, unemployment ticking up. So uh, that, that's our, our position. 
Or I think we're going to drill into a bunch of these topics that, that you laid out and things that you focus on. But maybe give us a little bit about your founding story, uh, your background, how you came to found Manhattan West. Is, is the West a location, you know, illusion that you're bringing Manhattan to San Francisco? What, what's, uh, tell us your founding story. Yeah, so, you know, my background, I had been at Bernstein in, in Century City and uh, had been at uh, J.P. Morgan in, in Century City. And uh, as I was coming up with the name Manhattan West, it was really a, an idea of thinking about Wall Street firms that I'd worked at, thinking about, you know, the, the New York as the center of the financial world, but having more of a West Coast iteration. And so, you know, came up with the idea of Manhattan and on the West Coast, and here we are in Los Angeles with the name Manhattan West. I was surprised it wasn't taken, but uh, here we are seven years later, and um, you know we're we're involved in a lot of different things. But that was that was really where the name came from. You know, J.P. Morgan was a quintessential you know Wall Street uh, bank, and and Bernstein was founded in the '60s, a, a traditional value-based equity firm. It's since grown and, and and gone through different iterations. But but that was really the DNA of this firm, right? That we. We all, most of the folks that are here have worked uh, at big uh, wirehouses, big big Wall Street-based firms. And so we were setting up a uh, shop out here uh, in, in that regard. It, if you were to say like how you think about building portfolios for people and, and the types of services Manhattan West offers, um, you have some core beliefs that you think are, uh, and I know from, from our conversation, there are some very unique things of how you think about building portfolios versus say a standard 6040 you know the standard 6040 worked very was was very struggled last year a, a big down year for stocks for bonds and weren't the traditional diversifiers how do you think about that in in your asset allocation type uh, approach yeah you know one of the things i i like to think about is that we we try to be more of a of a speedboat rather than a cruise ship in terms of our ability to pivot and that's where i think we have our advantages but you know our general viewpoint is that investors you know follow a more institutional model what are the institutions doing? Are, are they holding a 60-40 portfolio? No, they're not, right? They're mostly you know, a third in equity, a third in fixed income, and a third in alternatives. And that's really the foundation of how we view the markets. Um, but it's focused on where we think the opportunity's at, right? So you, you start with kind of a base mindset, and then you shape that for clients based on what's happening uh, in the economy. So for example, as you pointed out, you know, last year, the Dow was down roughly 10. The S&P was down, you know, 19.4, so almost 20. The uh, NASDAQ was down close to 30. And that AG was, you know, the Barclays AG bond index was down north of 10. So, you know, that that posture of a 60-40 of a portfolio didn't protect you uh, in an environment like last year. So um, this is a year where now you've seen those declines in equities. And all of a sudden, we're you know we're a little bit more optimistic about equities, and and we're also optimistic about about fixed income. So you know we're we're now taking different positions based on a shifting market. So you know just following the the reversion to the mean and and following a you know highly negative year, you know we're 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 somewhat optimistic about tech as these layoffs are happening and as these valuations have have really cratered. And so you know kind of skating to where the puck is going as opposed to just having this, you know, uh, you know, immovable uh, posture of, a, of an asset allocation. So that that's the way we see the world. We, we try to be active. We had a phenomenal year last year. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the way we're we're approaching 23. Uh, so talking about this speedboat shifting dynamics, um, you know, it was a tough year as you talk about like the Dow versus the NASDAQ. You know, the NASDAQ has just beaten everything for a decade. Uh, right. and, and a lot of those West Coast firms have been where there's been the growth, better valuations. But it struggled last year. A lot of it was just the Fed and compressing valuations. Is How much do you, th you know, a lot of people talk about when these valuations happen, they could last for a longer time. How, what, what, where do you, and, and you're sort of getting more optimistic on tech. How do you think about that in terms of what, what this current macro backdrop is? Well, look, I think a lot of it is incumbent upon what the Fed does, right? I, I think the uh, the outcome of 23 will really be determined by the movement of the Fed. And, um, and so, I, you know, I, I think a lot of clues will be determined by what they do on, on February 1st. If there's a signal that uh, that they're not going to continue raising after that, and if they if they don't, 
or if it's even a 25 basis point move, so it's signaling a more modest um, you know, uh, move, I think you're going to see a rally in the equity markets. And um, obviously, the first you know, three weeks of the year have been fairly volatile, but volumes have been down, right? So, so we're starting to come back to to more of a normal uh, pacing in, in, in markets, but uh, but that's really going to be the determiner of what happens, and uh, and and that will inform you know where we think the right place to be on the yield curve is for fixed income, uh, and how we're how we're positioning whether it's a little longer dated or, or shorter dated. Uh, last year we held short duration because we felt that the rates were moving up rapidly, and that that was helpful. Um, but but today it's really a focus on you know getting a sense of what's happening with the Fed and then looking at equities and focusing on companies with cash flow, focusing on more of a value tilt and and focusing on, you know, uh, companies that are going to survive in a tough credit market. Because I think what also is has been talked about a lot is, you know, the idea that companies that were that were losing money that now have to go to the debt markets, all of a sudden it's, you know, it may be an unforgiving place. And so, um, you know, when you start to see companies uh, move toward, you know, credit, uh, I think that's going to signal some weakening. And, and so we're looking for, you know, places to, to deploy capital with, with more, you know, solid uh, companies that more value till the little more boring companies out there, industrials and what have you. So that's the way we're thinking about it. Interesting. Yeah. I, and the, one of the themes we talk a lot about is, you know, there's income back and fixed income for the first time in, in a long time. And, and you know, the high yield p- part of the market coming into the year, some of the broad benchmarks are getting up close to 9%. And that you, as Siegel talked about at the start of the show, you've had a big rally in bond yields have come down, but still pretty reasonable yields compared to what you got the last three years, um, or if not longer. But are, are, is do you think with the recession, is that too risque to go into high yield bonds or do you do you think the compensation that eight percent range now today could be attractive um so you know i don't know that i would rush into high yield right now right given what what we're talking about i think i think high yields are gonna gonna have some challenges based on on, on what we described but i mean look at what's happening with the six month uh, you know treasuries right they're you're getting four percent for six months that's that's unheard of so i think folks are going to hang around the shorter part of the curve uh and in a fairly risk-free environment uh, and so you know why not hang around the hoop if you're getting it that easy uh you know i you don't really you're not really forced to go out on the yield curve i think when rates were at zero or near zero you were almost forced into equities uh or you were forced into you know longer dated stuff uh, because that was the only place to get yield, and that that's completely changed now. So, um, you know, we're we're more on the conservative side of of staying, you know, a shorter duration. We're talking with Lorenzo Esparza, who's founding principal at Manhattan West. Uh, it is interesting, Lorenzo, that you know it, the the inverted yield curve that you have, you know. It's like the exact opposite of what you're talking about, where you go the longer the duration, the lower the yield in a ways where right. you get one week duration and you're in the four sixties, four seventies. It's like why why take any duration risk if 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 particularly the the risk is the Fed doesn't listen to you, to, to the professor, and they they are hiking, you know, and that's the key risk for all other risk markets. Like you could get the you're gonna get five with no risk. It it's a very right. interesting conundrum. Yeah, no, it's well. Look, if you can have that and uh, relax and go on vacation, that's a pretty that's a pretty good situation to be in. But um, you know, at the end of the day, though, I think investors have to have a longer term, you know, point of view, right? Longer time horizon, and that's that's the the way that we should all be thinking. Having said that, you know, we would all be wise to pay attention to what's happening on the short end of the curve and 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 take those easy ups when you can get them. So. Um, I think, you know, thinking about things and in, in kind of this duality of what am I doing in the short term and where are my longer term strategies, that, that's really, you know, another way to, to, to have this kind of bifurcated viewpoint, right? So um, in that regard, uh, I, I still think you can, you know, own equities, you own the right sectors of, of the equity markets. And I think it could be, you know, a positive year. I'm not, I would, I would, you know, venture to say that, uh, you know, I think this year will be up in single digits. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to have a 30, 40% rally, but I don't think investors are going to get hurt, 
uh, you know, terribly in, in equities this year. Again, if I candidly feel like it's going to be positive following, you know, the three big indexes having, you know, fairly negative years. And I, and I also like, you know, the, the ad, right? So I don't think we're going to have another, another negative year of, uh, of, of the bond market. It certainly has started off in a in a very positive environment uh, for that. It, you know, it, you U.S. investors have sort of had it easy. You know, in in a way for for again that last decade of growth beating value. International, not so much. If you if you look at just sort of the you know global diversification, uh, it, it didn't do so well. But the last ninety days, you look at what's been happening out of Europe uh, and some of those markets. They've actually been beating the US emerging markets doing well with China reopening any any view as as you think about global allocations how much US how much foreign um what, what's your thoughts on that well i mean look the emerging markets are always highly volatile right you're up 30 or down 30 so i think um you know more modest uh allocations so 3 to 5% at any given time but you know i'm i'm going into emerging markets after they've been down substantially because i think that's where the opportunity for the entry point exists um but you know look if the credit markets get tougher you know emerging market debt those are the places that are going to feel it the worst so again i uh really keeping an eye on on what happens in credit here in the us um in terms of of like you know developed international markets i was in 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 london for for the holidays and um you know, the inflation story is bad there, right? It's like 9.2%. Um, and they've had pretty tough, uh, uh, you know, challenges in, in, in Europe. And I think until we get a little more clarity on the Ukraine situation, I still think there's a lot of risk there. I, I really do. Um, I Do I think the, the equity markets in, 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 you know, developed foreign, you know, European markets are going to do okay? I do until they don't. And I, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek because I still think there's a modest risk. You could get, you know, a low grade, dirty bomb, uh, a chemical uh, in Ukraine. So, you know, I have some friends that uh, that I talk to and, you know, closer to the source of what's happening in, in you know, that in, in Ukraine uh, and in Russia. And, you know, look, Putin's not going to like losing he already doesn't like losing and i think you see the 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 way that they've conducted themselves in ukraine it's it's pretty you know, gruesome and um you know i i just worry that there's a risk of a low-grade nuclear bomb i, I wouldn't say it's a you know 30 40 percent chance but i'd say there's a you know five percent chance that something like that happens and so if that happens then you know owning european equities is is going to be problematic emerging markets will also tank pretty quick so i i just you know i don't think folks have to rush into that uh, sector um I, I think a modest allocation uh is perfectly fine but until we get some clarity you know hoping for a diplomatic resolution uh sometime this year uh otherwise it's just gonna continue to to, to move forward with this overhang of of, of a pretty big risk yeah, which is always very tricky to find out, like how much is priced into the markets, how much is not, um, and right. and uh, are people now like for a while people thought it was going to be a quick war, and now it's like the war could be forever, and and uh, these these are such tricky issues to understand. It's good to know where where you're thinking of of uh, allocating globally. I, in the second half of the program, we're talk a lot about what you do with alternatives and get a, a sense of higher building portfolios, but anything on the traditional stock and bond mix um, that we haven't covered just to kickstart, anything else you'd say about how you think about allocating across the world today? Well, I, again, there was a time when we were fully leaning into, you know, the tech and the growth names that were that really led the NASDAQ. Again, today, it's a focus on on boring. It's a focus on, you know, industrial names. It's a focus on, you know, companies with cash flow, um, you know, uh, uh, consumer good type uh, companies. I, I hesitate to, to name names because one, I'm not a stock picker, and two, you know, compliance reasons. I I don't want to go out and, and and make recommendations here. But I would say that um, that as the tech names continue to get beat up, and and many of them have, starting to look pretty interesting. And if the Nasdaq was down 30 this year, 
you know, I don't think it's going to be down another 30. So, uh, you know, having some allocation to, you know, more of a tech sector as as valuations come down, you know, is not a bad not a bad idea. Uh, might they go a little bit lower? Sure, but um, but if it's a longer term, you know, capital longer term time horizon, then I think we're I think it's perfectly suitable uh, strategy. We have Lorenzo Sparza, the CEO, founding principal of Manhattan West. We'll be talking with him about how he builds alternative portfolios. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, and Lorenzo, I think one of the most interesting things you talked about is is how you're building portfolios and even the team you've built to go after this, uh, what you might call like a, an endowment type foundation, institutional type a portfolio that allocates significantly to alternatives. So let's talk a little bit more about why you sort of built your own team to offer some of these products uh, or strategies and how you think about uh, just the different things that were attractive to build uh, on your own there. Sure. Well, look, I think, uh, you know, the financial advisory business is one where there's a lot of folks that have a firm and they say, well, we'll just allocate to all of these managers and they're going to be the best in class managers and you're going to do great. The problem is that not everybody can be a best in class manager. So oftentimes these choices that happen among financial advisors and consultants, they end up being poor choices, right? And so uh, if everyone's saying that, then it can't possibly be correct. So we take a different position, and this is our manner of differentiating uh, our, our offering, which is to say, look, we're going to lean into the idea that we're going to manage the money truly, and so we'll build our own proprietary strategies in fixed income, in equities, and then within alternatives. And so we've built out teams in um, real estate, private equity, venture capital, uh, and private debt. And that's that's really the way in which we approach our firm. Again, I think I mentioned earlier, I worked at Bernstein. They're a proprietary firm. I think they do a great job. And um, and so, you know, kind of growing up in that space, uh, thought we would do it ourselves here. And, and we just have a more boutique approach to doing it. But but that's the reason for for our approach. Well, there's a lot of probably hot topics in all of these. I mean, we talked a little bit about tech, and so maybe we, we start with the venture capital team, what they're seeing in the markets, how you're thinking about deploying new capital. I mean, in, in the public markets, you get a quote every day. VC world, it's like, are they marking their books right? How are you, how do you think about that? Like, where are valuations today versus where you saw maybe 12, 24 months ago? Sort of speak to new opportunities versus what you had deployed before. How, how do you think about that place today? Sure, sure. Well, before I say that, I think one of the things I do is kind of zooming out, say, there's two things that investors are looking for, right? One is growth and one is income. And so if if uh, income is, is, is your traditional fixed income uh, offerings and, and what have you, alternatives to that are private debt and real estate. In the world of growth, right, where you're really folks are focused on equities, we look at equities and then as an alternative, we think about venture and private equity. So within venture, which is really the question you were asking, um, we are seeing a number of companies that are having down rounds. We're seeing a number of companies that um, are having their valuations brought down. Um, and, And so, you know, I think when I look at the market, you know, I'm not looking to deploy capital when everything is frothy. I'm looking to deploy capital when when things have obviously, you know, come back down to earth. I'll use one example, and and uh, you know, Klarna uh, is a is a, a fintech company that just had a significant down round. They're down to 6.7 billion on their last round. Well, to me, that's a you know that that that's a uh, an area where you know I think that. Um, you know, probably more accurate representation of where that business is at. Um, other big tech companies have had, you know, significant valuation uh, reductions. And so um, we went through this period where everything was getting marked up. Uh, valuations were incredibly high. And so now that is, you know, the opposite is the case. Uh, I think it was Sequoia that came out and told their you know port codes to to be much more conservative and and hold cash and and try to focus on you know managing the business so um so we like the venture capital area uh in this moment in time because prices are depressed right so um if that continues to happen then i have been talking about this 22 23 vintage where we know that the market has slowed dramatically that there's very little capital out there 
folks are worried about catching a falling knife, but what, what you know, that's the moment you're looking for, right? And so, so we like allocating to venture capital uh, as part of our allocations for growth and for a longer term time horizon, because obviously these are these tend to be more longer term uh, holdings. Um, and and you're right, it's very different. It's not like you know looking at a terminal or looking at on TV and seeing what the latest price of Apple is, uh, you know, moment to moment until the market closes. These are valuations that get uh, you know moved on a quarterly basis maybe twice a year, maybe once a year, whenever there's a new financing round. Um, so, you know, you, you, uh, you have to be cautious, but, but we like that area. Has, has there been too much capital raised for this type of stuff? Or you think it's, uh, it, it, do you feel like there was a lot of competition pr- forcing up deals? Uh, what, what has generally been the environment for the last five, five years or so has been very, very good market. So a lot of money has come in in some ways. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say this. I think there's a couple of trends happening, right? Ten years ago, accessing venture capital for 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 most people was fairly difficult. There wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of uh, you know opportunities to do it. Fast forward today, there's a lot more VC investment. There's a lot more companies, you know, across the uh, institutional world. Uh, those institutions are allocating to it, so there you started to see a lot more capital chasing that asset class, and so. Um, that obviously drove up valuations because people were throwing money at companies just to be able to get in. Um, but I think the other larger phenomenon that is happening is, I believe there's roughly $34, $35 trillion in private wealth, right? But only 3% of that is being accessed by private wealth. And so you're starting to see a lot of the bigger companies come out, uh, Apollos of the world and Aries and, and some of the larger institutions like a Blackstone, where they're now trying to access the private wealth clientele. And so you're going to see that 3%, you know, of, of folks that are, that are, that are in uh, alternatives start to, that's going to be a bigger number pretty soon, right? You'll see more money flow into it. So um, now that institutions are, are in uh, venture and, and other alternatives, now you're seeing this whole new wave of capital coming. So it's just a matter of time as this kind of last, um, you know, as this kind of overhang of, of too much capital and now depressed prices, you're going to see a reflation once we get a little bit further down the road. So, you know, am, am I overly optimistic on, on venture this moment in time? No, but I do think in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months, you'll start to see a reflation of uh, valuations uh, after these down rounds have, have come into the market. You know, I think the one other hot button issue, I'm going to switch gears to the income side and maybe we'll come back to private equity as well. But on the income side, you're starting to see some stories um, for some of the major uh, big real estate firms, some of the private real estate firms talking about gating a little bit um there's some stories about you know liquidity and and uh and a few of the, the really big firms going after this have 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 tried to prevent some investors from getting liquidity is that an ominous sign to you anything you're seeing in the markets that suggests trouble ahead or, or you know the, just the deals getting done in the past different cap rates the yields have moved up dramatically how that impacts all these private real estate deals that have have taken place yeah, so I think, um, well, I'll, g- I'll give you an example as part of answering this question. But, um, you know, we as a firm invest in multifamily and we invest in industrial uh, buildings as well. And, you know, six months ago, nine months ago, every deal that we were chasing, there were multiple, you know, bidders for it in, in industrial. And now we've seen that 90% of the buyers are pencils down. And so it's actually an environment where we're really excited. We've been waiting for this moment where valuations have come down and they've come down because interest rates have moved up. Uh, Obviously cap rates have been problematic. And so a a lot of industrial, excuse me, institutional investors are are getting cautious that maybe this isn't such a a great time. And so we've been really careful about, you know, deploying into it. But again, we we like the sector. The thing I'll give you is an I should say the example that I would tell you is I spoke with an institutional investor. They had 14 LOIs out on different properties. And as rates moved up and things were happening, all of a sudden they're down to three. So they cut, you know, 11 of those. And um, I, I would tell you that, um, 
you know, that's a sign that uh, that the buyer pool is shrinking. Um, you know, I've seen retrades happening over and over and over. But at some point, that retrade and that valuation becomes really attractive. And so, um, you know, we're from an investment standpoint, as these, you know, valuations have come down, we're 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 optimistic about the space. Again, it's not turning overnight, but again, over the next 12 to 24 months, we like this window of time uh, where one can come in and, and 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 do some pretty good deals. We're talking with Lorenzo Esparza, who's CEO of Manhattan West, about the approach his firm takes and and building very unique alternative investment platforms for. We talked about venture. We talked about real estate. Uh, can you give us some examples on the cap rates that you might have been seeing before versus today on some of those real estate deals? Like how much have valuations adjusted twelve months ago versus where you are today? Sure. Um, well, I'll give you I'll give you an example on an actual deal. We were we were tracking a deal that was supposed to trade at forty eight million. Um, it, it it dropped to forty five, then forty two. We're talking like multiple iterations of, of tying it up and sellers saying yes or no. That deal ended up closing at thirty six. Hmm. So you could see from just that that you know the starting point to where we are. Um, you know, from a valuation standpoint. Uh, it's changed dramatically. The cap rates have shifted, but again, it's more a function of of what the debt markets have done, right? So lenders, one, have exited the space, uh, two, have just made, you know, uh, borrowing a little bit more difficult, uh, leverage has gone down. So the lenders that were out there that were willing to go, you know, pretty high on a, on a LTC basis have really cut back uh, all of their guidelines and they're they're much more conservative now. So we, we use low leverage. We're not a high leverage um, investor, meaning we're 50, 55 percent levered on, on any deals. But um, but but I'd say overall, uh, you're seeing the market respond to the lending market changing and um, and then the number of buyers that are out there and the willingness of sellers to uh, to, to lower their prices where before you just didn't see that. Things were trading above, you know, above ask. In in terms of the the other two pieces of this alternative platform, um, in, in let's go. We'll switch gears again. One more back time back to the, sort of the growth side and private equity. Is this given? You know, some a lot. The leverage goes from real estate to private equity, and some. I don't know if you want to talk about how you think about leverage there too, and sort of the cost of leverage, cost of deals going up is that how, how do you see valuation adjustments in private equity versus venture capital and and as the you know similar opportunity versus uh forward looking as, as you also yeah. to? uh you know i think the story is similar right um there was so much money in private equity uh of funds trying to get capital on the street and um i think that's where you see you know bad deals happening but um i i'd say that you know leverage ratios on the private equity side have gone have gone down um, because you know folks are just getting a lot more cautious about the environment. Um, and I think the story is the same where you could you could pursue a company that was was on the market and there were 15 you know suitors for that. Today it's down to three or four, right? I'm I'm thinking of some examples that can't say the name, but um, but literally you know that the market has shifted. So I, I think um, in you know, across the board. And that's why I talk about the perspective we have at this firm, because we're in these different asset classes in a deep level, right? We're not just alloc- we're not just handing the money to a manager and saying, hey, okay, take this, go put it into apartment buildings. We actually own a number of apartment buildings and we property manage those. We know what, what's happening down to the tenant level. Um, and so, again, the trend in real estate, the trend in private equity, the trend in venture, um, these these things are all you know telling the same story, and so uh, we feel you know pretty well informed, and I think it's getting more exciting uh, with these you know levels that we're starting to see and haven't seen for a while. So um, you know those are those are those are places that that give you a lot of uh, a lot of clarity. 
Let's talk a little bit about your client base and in terms of when when it's a very unique model for the advisor world in terms of how, do you service other advisors who might you know want to get access to some of this private investment side uh, in addition to individuals? How do you think about that in terms of um, sort of direct end client versus other advisors who might want to use you know some of your your uh, proprietary strategies? Sure. Um, so on the private wealth side, you know, we do traditional investment management in addition to the alternatives, but we also have, you know, personal CFO services or business management services and, uh, and tax services. And so, you know, I, I always joke if I, if I were at JP Morgan and we were trying to give tax advice or, or help someone with their, you know, uh, personal bill pay, we'd be shown the door. They, they're just not in that business. But we like that idea of servicing clients and being, you know, wholly invested in what they do. In order for us to have, you know, to, to be impactful, it has to be a, you know, a high net worth individual, five to 10 million, but that kind of servicing, service offering was typically seen only at the ultra high net worth space. So, so I think we're in a great sector of the market for how we uh, work with clients and then the way we put portfolios together. So, um, you know, in addition to the services that we offer, we were, were, you know, investing, helping clients invest that capital. Um, and that really kind of helps deliver kind of a one-stop, uh, you know, opportunity for clients. And, and, and we, we think, you know, we've gotten great feedback that they appreciate that approach. What was it like building a team to go after these these alternative markets? I'm sure it's a very robust market. How are you finding talent? You know, rewarding the talent. How do you think about setting up a team? Maybe talk a little bit about the the, the yeah. groups that are supporting each of those products. Yeah, well, I think it's first the lens in which you're looking for those people. So we we talk very clearly about we're looking for folks with exceptional work experience, exceptional you know, uh, educational backgrounds and, and exceptional people. We, we want really good folks. And so we start with that kind of lens. And then, you know, I've been in the business for a long time. I know a lot of people. So I've, I've been able to find the right folks to get on the bus. Uh, and we work with some effective recruiters that, that understand the culture, understand what we're trying to accomplish. But yeah, look, I, I would say, you know, it's worth seven years in. It's, it, it, it wasn't built in a day. And so um, I think, you know, managing and human capital bringing in the right folks has, has really been something that I've been fortunate to do here. Uh, I'm grateful every day for the people we have. We have a really, really fantastic team. But um, I think it's, it's again, a focus on, on people that are really great at what they do, subject matter experts. You know, one of our, one of our venture investors literally uh, managed money for the New York Common Fund and for another Orange County pension, right? Wharton MBA, NYU undergrad. This is a guy that has met every, you know, literally uh, most of the great, you know, alternative managers in his career. Has rec been recognized by, you know, different uh, uh, industry groups, and so that's the guy that's, uh, you know, helping us manage our venture capital, uh, you know, money. And so, you know, that's the caliber of folks we that we that we look for and and, and lean into. So. Um, it's been a challenge, but it's also been incredibly fun. I mean, I I, uh, I wake up at four or five in the morning every every day, kind of excited to come in because you know we we there's a lot of fun things happening, and I'm you know just uh, appreciate the the complexity of the financial markets and what's happening in the global economy. So a little bit of a nerd in that way. Well, on Wharton Business Radio, we like uh, of course we support the Wharton MBAs out there. Uh, we appreciate uh, we appreciate that. Um, in in terms of if if you were to say of all these these alternatives uh, there there's obviously very different goals between the the income and the growth but if you said you were excited about the most about any of the four which which is the four that you say you're the most excited about today you know picking your favorite children is very very tough but what which you know it's children's... so funny you say that i have two boys and i always say i love my sons equally right so it's hard for me to, to never pick. true um, never true it's never uh, true yeah. So, um, look, I guess what I would tell you is, um, you know, uh, if, I, if I'm forced to pick a couple of asset classes, um, you know, I'd say right now, because uh, of where we're at in the cycle, um, you know, I like kind of the real estate, the high income. Uh, I like, you know, the private debt space, you know, higher, higher yielding um, 
stable type investments are are probably making me feel warm and fuzzy on on one side. But then again, I I still think there's there's opportunities in equity markets after we've had such a terrible you know pullback last year, but probably one that was needed. But um, yeah, you know, I think again in six months, you know, my viewpoint will change a little bit perhaps. But you know, we have to see what the Fed does uh, uh, on February first. Um, if if you said you were the most bearish about something that people are doing today, as as things that you see, you see client portfolios come in. What are the things you, you, you know, you, you see the most that is, is is the least like that you you know you're, you're trying to get them away from as as quickly as possible. Gosh, that that, that that's a good question. Look, I, I I'll say this, but I will tell you, you know, uh, we're still a believer that the digital asset economy is real, not necessarily the coin space, but blockchain technology, right? What's happening in blockchain technology is impacting most of the S&P 500 companies. It's, it's here to stay, right? Web Web 3.0 and, and, and really the growth in that market. Um, but I would be most cautious to investors uh, putting capital into digital assets. Now, Bitcoin's up 20 something percent year to date, right? Because it's been so depressed. Um, but I think for most investors, one of the things I always say is, look, don't invest in anything you don't understand. And, um, you know, a lot of folks have had trouble explaining why, you know, Solana is a great investment. And if you can't understand, you know, these various coins, uh, then don't put your money into it, right? If, 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 if you're investing in an apartment building and you can count rents and you can understand debt and understand, you know, cash flows and value of the property from a replacement, you know, cost standpoint, you know, pretty easy to make a sound decision about that. Um, very hard to make a sound decision about anything that's too esoteric. So I would just say for most investors, that's probably not a place to be. And yeah, I can't tell you how many people across my you know universe of, of people that I connect with uh, per, in my personal life with my kids or sports. And, you know, I get folks telling me, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going real heavy into digital assets. And, you know, I have subsequent conversations and they've had, you know, pretty rough go of it in the last, you know, year or so. So that that's really it. I think it's more about a function of stick to what you know, stick to what you can understand. And if you can make sense of it, then it probably is something that you should do. But uh, yeah, that's probably my my, my take there. I think that is a very good closing note where we're sort of running out of time here. Any two seconds about where people can find more information on Manhattan West? Yeah, uh, you can go to our website, uh, www.manhattanwest.com. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're easy to reach. Our contact information is all over the website. And uh, yeah, we appreciate uh, your time. Thank you for having me. And I uh, look forward to speaking with anybody that has any questions uh, about what we do. Very good, Lorenzo. This has been a great conversation. Lorenzo Esparza, who's CEO of Manhattan West. Very interesting portfolio approach. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, uh, our sound engineer, Chris Tukes. You can listen to our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.